Welcome to The Sacramentalists, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Father Miles Hickson. And I'm Father Creighton McElveen. And today we are honored to have Dr. Christopher Seitz on the podcast to discuss the canonical approach to scripture. Dr. Seitz is a senior research professor at Wycliffe College. Um, before that, he was a professor of Old Testament at Yale University and the University of St. Andrews. He's an ordained Episcopal priest and has served parishes in Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Germany, France, and Scotland. He's the, he's the past president of the Anglican Communion Institute and the editor of Studies in Theological Interpretation and is on the advisory board of the Scripture and Hermeneutics Consultation. He's published over a dozen books on the interpretation of Old and New Testaments and in the area of theological hermeneutics. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Seitz. It's good to be here. Well, I think uh, to help frame our conversation today, um, it might be helpful to define some terms. So what are we talking about when we talk about a canonical approach to scripture? I think most signally the term is, is associated with Brevard Childs. Um, there was some flirtation with the language uh, out in California, James Saunders, although I would say now with the passage of time, I think most people associate a canonical reading or canonical interpretation with Childs and myself. Um, the term is not without its problems because I think particularly in North America, the word canon or canonical tends fairly immediately to get into the territory of how many books are there in the Bible, what order are they in, uh, who closed the canon, these kinds of questions. Childs was trained in Germany, as was I, and I think there the term canon more instinctively went back to Irenaeus and others who used the term canon a, a canon of faith, a, a rule, the term really means something having to do with measurement. And they, in those people's hands, it really had more to do with what kind of presuppositions one brings to the reading of the Bible. And in particular, in the case of the Old Testament, the way one thinks about the character of, of, of God disclosed there. And Irenaeus was very keen to protect both the monoth both the, there is one God in two testaments, the same God, um, and in in different ways, uh, the triune character of God is revealed. Um, he didn't use the language of logos asarkos, but it's clear when you read him that he thinks along these lines. Uh, as did, um, I think it's fairly clear in the dialogues between Justin and Trifo, Trifo operates with some understanding of God's dynamic character in which he is both uh, in his eternity and also in his incarnate forms uh, within the life of the people of Israel. And I think a canonical approach is open to thinking through the implications of the way the Old Testament both speaks meaningfully to a historical audience, but at the same time is rich enough 
to speak more than is necessarily at the time apprehended. Now, there's obviously the whole question as to where canonical readings fit into the modern landscape of reading when it comes strictly speaking to exegesis. Some of your questions point at this. I mean, and I think that that probably, uh, there was a certain sort of, I think, hubris uh, related to 18th century claims about what historical criticism was capable of doing, which cut itself off from the long history of interpretation in which the literal sense as a meaningful historical sense and also with the potential of having other sense-making possibilities was always uh, fruitfully pursued. The Antiochians tended to think about context and they didn't have theories of sources and and uh, the kinds of things that modernity has bequeathed to us but they were more wary of double sense or triple sense making and, and they came out of their own semitic background their familiarity with lucian of antioch and others so it's it's not the case that this is a modern issue only one only has to read even the difference between uh, Aquinas and Augustine when it comes to the Psalms, to see that the way they handle the historical, I think what Aquinas would call the literal sense, you know, Aquinas can call the literal sense a spiritual sense, and he'll call a historical sense a Jewish sense or a overly restrictive sense. Psalm 22 can only be about David, it can't be about Christ. For Aquinas, it has to be about both things. For Augustine, it may only be about the second thing. He's just not really very much interested in Israel as a reality, though he changes, I think, over the course of his, you read Psalm 137, and Aquinas and Augustine look closer. He's less inclined to disparage the Psalms in their received form as heard in the in the synagogue but i think that has to do with probably his his sort of drifting into two cities and sort of the deterioration of his own world but that, that's okay that's a too broad a topic but clearly historical dimensions are important uh, and i think to the degree to which aquinas or Augustine can be heard as really sort of not being at all interested in what God has to say meaningfully to Israel. He has missed a dimension that the church wants to preserve and has maybe even over-preserved in, in modernity. Um, one, it, you know, I'm just talking in abstractions. I mean, clearly, take, let's take an example. Genesis 1 to 3, famously now divided into uh, two kinds of reflections, one using the divine name, another using another divine name, form critically, they look different, so forth and so on. There's, there's a degree to which that's undeniable. Any close reader can, can see uh, the thing that the seams don't work real well, they back up, uh, they go back again, and then they sort of, Jews handled that by saying, uh, there's no before or after in Holy Scripture the fathers did a similar kind of thing. I think they, they weren't really worried about uh, overlap or conflation. And I think similarly, a canonical reading wants to hear the two texts in conjunction rather than thinking of the second 
voice as a corrective or a modification or rejection and anticipating a bit the questions you've, you've given me. I, that, I found that spirit in Beauchamp, which was why I was interested in, uh, in him in, in his second volume, L'autre testament, the, the one and the other testament, which I had discovered in my time in France, which is not, not translated into English. Um, another example would be Psalms 1, 2, and 3. In the tradition, uh, those Psalms are heard in concert. Uh, the Psalm 1 commends Torah and a kind of life of obedience and wisdom. Then it introduces David through the lens of that, and the nations are the, are the wicked who plot against and so forth. So the tradition tended to think in terms of complementarity, uh, concert, symphony, where you're sort of queuing up different instruments, uh, where it's possible in modernity. I, was, I just read an essay the other day a Jewish interpreter uh, who really wants to say this kind of reading is wrong. And, you know, Psalm 1's a mosaic voice, Psalm 2's a Davidic voice, they're at war with each other, and so forth and so on. So it's just really, I think, in some ways has to do with a rule of faith, uh, the way one assumes the scriptures have been shaped. Uh, and, and, you know, you when you talk about historical methods, one of the things that historical methods have taught us is that with all likelihood, the traditions have aggregated and grown. Uh, then the question is, what is the character of that aggregation? Is it complementarity? Is it enrichment? Is it seeing more than one might have seen at first? These are the instincts, I think, of historical criticism. Uh, and I had spotted a lot of that, to my satisfaction, in the unusual character I was, I was trained in, namely Gerhard von Rod and Martin Nogue. And the irony was that I, I've read those things quite closely as a student in German and in English. But it wasn't until I was reading Beauchamp, who was quoting Note, Note died in the six early 60s late 50s don't quote me and note was himself saying the pentateuch in its final form is all the church has we must strive to understand it in that form i've never i never i just didn't recall those admonitions from note and genesis the genesis commentary of on rod and written in the 60s shortly before he died you have to read the very good of p in order to understand the fall of J, to use that kind of typical language. And uh, I think Von Rod and Childs and Note, uh, were they all alive at the same time, probably would have said, oh, yeah, that's exactly what one might expect now that we've done this certain kind of historical investigation. Maybe we ought to take into account the way the text sits before us. So what separates us from the, the ancients is this awareness of a depth dimension, however one describes that. And then the question is, is how can, can one think about that productively, not reductively? Uh, I've just finished an essay on the way in which two 11th and 12th century Jewish interpreters wrestled with Isaiah 40 following 
given that they were close enough readers to see that it didn't sound like prediction. It sounded like contemporaneous speech. And they're trying to figure out how to make that square with, in their case, a particular messianic reading that focused on the suffering of the Jews in the Middle Ages. But all the same, all the same problems are resident there simply because they're trying to read closely and they know the difference between in the latter days, X, Y, and Z will happen. And I say to Cyrus, my servant, that these are different registers. Well, very good. Um, maybe looking at a different question, you've kind of touched on a few of these points, but to circle back around. So in what ways um, does the canonical approach ground itself in the ecclesial community? Yeah, I'm glad you posed that question because I think it's an aspect of child's that, uh, he would obviously want to say the Bible is written from faith to faith. It isn't a it isn't a piece of general hermeneutics. God makes a disclosure to a particular people, and Gentiles in the Old Testament may overhear that discourse, but its privileged character is resident in what it means to be scripture. Um, it's like, and I and I press hard on this in the Elder Testament. I don't. It's, to my mind, it's an equally historical question how it is that we have access to reading the Old Testament at all. Um, it, it, uh, and the answer is Jesus Christ, to, to put it in a nutshell. We don't, we, we Gentiles lie outside of its frame of reference, and therefore it is the Lord, the Lord God who has come to bring health and salvation to Israel and the Gentiles, who opens the book and declares it to be about himself. Uh, you can find studies today that talk about uh, what it means to try to imagine yourself in a pre-scriptural period at Qumran or the Second Temple. And this is sort of popular right now. And the question I would pose is, is a simple sort of historical or sociological question. To what degree am I ever how, why would I identify with those communities? I don't belong to them. They went out of business. Uh, one could dis dispute what Qumran is, but the idea that you would just freeze a frame at an earlier period of time and imagine yourself as resident within it, it seems to me fraught with all kinds of just basic ground level historical problems. Um, and it comes to the church. That's particularly, I think, important to underline when it comes to the Old Testament. The Old Testament, we don't really have councils deciding on the number of books. The books grow up. They are what they are. If there was one less or one more, I don't think it would be a great moment. The rabbis are more concerned with why it is it that Esther makes the hands unclean, not it does it. It's not unlike Luther saying that James is a strawy epistle. Well, it is, but he sticks it in the Bible nonetheless. He just moves it somewhere. He's not registering a decision about its authorities questioning it, or he doesn't like it, something like this. So the, the, uh, the character of, I have a chapter in Elder Testament I like very much. It doesn't get picked up a lot in the reviews. And that is, can we be readers of this book? And I think that question is, is a historical question. How does the book come to us? We get issued library cards and we, we wouldn't be able to get in the library without them. And so there's that issue. Now, the second part of that 
that I knew well about Childs, but I think those who maybe didn't know him, in the classroom, Childs regularly taught a two-semester history of interpretation course where he taught the reception of the Bible uh, in the up to the Reformation and then on. And I do a lot of that teaching now, and I enjoy it more than anything that I do. I don't know how much longer I'm going to teach, but I like teaching the history of interpretation. You look at Origen, you move to the Antiochians, you try to understand what they're doing. Augustine, the odd, there's some odd voices in uh, uh, in Cappadocia. Uh, they have their own kind of thing. They're kind of indebted to Origen, but on the other hand, they have some natural science interests. Uh, Charles is very interested in that. I think in part because it destabilized everybody. Uh, it obviously wipes out the claim that there's a certain historical moment in time when people are beginning to read the Bible better, which was sort of early historical critical claim. On the other hand, none of these people are without their own blind spots. And that's, that's good. I mean, I have students, often Asian students who have no familiarity. Actually, that's not fair. Western students don't have much familiarity either. And they'll read, uh, they'll read Augustine on the Psalms that are completely baffled. They just don't, uh, you know, what do you mean? The dribble in the beard of David is the Pharisaic speech and the drum is the skin drawn taut on the cross and all this kind of thing. And the point that I think we try to get across is, look, let, let, let's just try to understand what they're doing. Let's try to understand what it is that, that is animating this. Historical criticism also bequeathed to us an accuracy model. It's like a target. There's this is right and that's wrong. Nothing wrong with that. We don't want bad exegesis, but you can overcook that pudding. That, that there's a search for the literal sense that is a spiritual and ascetic discipline. Origen liked problems because he thought that they taught us to be humble and to, to kneel before the scriptures rather than bring a gun or a sleuth's, uh, I, what do you call it, uh, Sherlock Holmes kind of uh, give me the clues and I'll solve the problem. Sometimes problems are just there to, to uh, pressure the church to search. So that dimension, and I, I have a lot, to deal with this both in Elder Testament, where I try to look at some ways in which the church's use of the scriptures in earlier era helpfully remind us of notes that have fallen out, often the ontological notes. Uh, but I think equally, it's a reminder that the Bible, in some ways, this is the this is Paul's point, I think, in Romans that these things were written for our edification. And therefore, those who are edified by Scripture through the ages have something to teach us because they think about the Bible in this way. Uh, and so the Bible belongs in the church's life and the life of the synagogue as well. Often the fathers are very tuned in to, to that dimension depending on who they are. Um, so I think the openness, uh, let, me, let me back up to where I started. Childs' book, The Struggle to Understand Isaiah's Christian Scripture, is probably not as well known 
that's his study of Isaiah through the history of interpretation, but I think is far more who he is. And at the end of that book, and I get into this in Convergences, at the end of that book, he says, therefore, having traced the history of Isaiah's readers reading in the church, I can say with confidence, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And for me, the point there is that Catholicity can also be described as fidelity to certainly interest in the church's lived life with the Bible. And that's what Childs was claiming the creed was actually saying. Now, this gets into other questions that you raise, but that's the reason that title of Convergence's Canon and Catholicity, I was trying to pay attention to the resourceful movement at Vatican II, that is de Lubac's Fouvier experience uh, in Lyon, where the, the source chrétien and the, and the source medieval and all that was coming out because there's a way in which what Childs is very much interested in that dimension as well, though coming from a Presbyterian Anglican sort of point of orientation. Uh, so that dimension is quite central to Childs's work, even though the bulk of his writing has been more in conversation with the limitations of historical reading and alternatives to that, such as we talked about them. But his real love was for the history of interpretation, Jewish and Christian, just, he just came to that quite naturally. And I've picked up that in my own classroom teaching with Mark Elliott from Glasgow. He and I teach on uh, courses on the Psalms in the history of reception. Uh, in, in large measure to acquaint our students with this, though it's, it's hard going. It's just very unusual stuff. You have to have enough Greek and Latin too to appreciate why certain things are happening. Psalm 45 doesn't make much sense uh, my voice overflows with a godly theme. In the Greek, it's have something that sounds a whole lot like generation. And so they're in, they get off on that and they get into eternal generation and Diodor and Theodore don't like that and they push back. The point is that they're, they're trying to close read texts and make theological judgments about the way they deliver their senses. So I know, I know we've sort of touched on some of this, you know, obliquely and everything, but how does the canonical approach enhance our understanding of biblical theology itself? Well, you know, I think in a way, a lot of these terms are placeholders. It's, it's not a pushback. It's just, I'm not sure what biblical theology is. You know, we could talk a little bit about that. I think I know what you mean when you use the word. Uh, theological interpretation uh, is the, uh, au courant, but in a way, it's, uh, it's simply skepticism about historical critical overreach, and it depends a lot on who, who you're reading. Uh, Robert Wall is going to have his version, and uh, New Testament guy out in California is going to have his. Uh, Joel, forgive me, I'm getting older. It's so. But biblical theology, on the one hand, you know, we might say biblical theology is a genre. That is, it's a textbook genre where you try to, you know, describe the doctrines of God and you wrestle with that. And I don't see a lot of evidence of much interest in that. Childs tried to do it in such a way that he, uh, 
both paid attention to the discrete voice of the Old Testament, the discrete voice of the New, and then he tried to, to, to bring those into symphonic conjunction, but the book is unwieldy. It's big, it's hard to assign. Uh, you think about who's writing these things. Brueggemann, you know, wrote an Old Testament theology. You had uh, John Golden Gay, but they're really concerned to guard the Old Testament from being Christianized. So in that sense, it's a kind of modern project. Um, there is, I was thinking about this in terms of your questions, there is uh, in Göttingen, in, in Saxony, uh, Hermann Spiekermann and his New Testament colleague, uh, Feldmeier, they're producing some books out of Baylor. The first one was The God of the Living and so forth. So they're, they're trying to do a bit of this. I don't know how it will fare. It may be it's a time for modesty uh, probes and studies. Um, a volume has just come out in my honor called The Identity of Israel's God in Christian Scripture, uh, SBL. You know, and I'd say if you want to know what biblical theology is, where we're, where people are wrestling, th these would be good essays for that to see, you know, what 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 are some alternatives to reading, um, and even canonical approach is not without its, you know, critics and what do you really mean? A lot of people just dismiss the idea altogether. I think James Barr famously called it a voodoo method or something like this. So, I think that that's been proven a bit silly with the passage of time. Uh, I think attention to the final form of the text also can move in the direction of reader response and uh, forms of, you know, this is what I see, what do you see? And I think canonical reading has tried to push back against the subjectivity inherent in those kinds of approaches, but that's very popular today. That could be arguably the most popular thing. Uh, I am transgender. This is the way I read Ezekiel on uh, you know, the, the two cities or something and, and uh, you know, don't you know, go and don't do likewise or whatever the sort of moral message of that is. The, the Blackwell series on the history of interpretation has a lot of that kind of approach. Um, I'm not answering your question well, Creighton, I fear, but I, I mean, I, 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 minimally, I hope it's clear that I judge canonical reading as a positive, uh, constructive, uh, attuned to the long life of the Bible and the church's use. Uh, th those are the kinds of things that I think a canonical approach does well. Uh, would Aquinas write a biblical theology were he alive today? I think the answer is no. He would do exegesis. And in that sense, all the fathers of the church, John Calvin, Luther more recently, thought of themselves as exegetes. There's always, isn't that there's always this funny dance. I mean, you look, Calvin started off with the institutes. It was a fairly modest thing and it, it had, it served certain aims justification for the reformed movement in Switzerland and in France and so forth. But he was a preacher. So he preached every day during the week on the Old Testament because it's longer and on the Sabbath, the New Testament. And in, in the light of that, the institutes kept growing because the biblical theological chore and the exegetical chore ought to be capable of 
you know, influencing one in such a way that you could change your mind or think through things. Origen operated this way too. He often got into trouble, um, uh, but he's trying to negotiate his exegetical and his theological side. And certainly canonical reading understands that that's a duty of the, of the church, uh, not just uh, something to do. And, and of course, this gets into the place of preaching and so forth. So part of the reason I was interested in the lectionary in convergences is that, and that was a kind of logical place to put my foot down toward the end of the book, because at Vatican II, you had, I think, three, this is rough and ready. Um, you had Tridenton, Thomists, uh, worried about preserving the, uh, the sort of scholastic side of the Catholic thing. Uh, two sources of authority would have been a big thing and, and maybe one with the Bible in some second place a bit. Then you had a group of biblical-oriented folk who felt that hiding from historical criticism was producing a kind of fundamentalist um, expedient, almost uh, appreciation of scripture's role. Uh, and they wanted, and often these were Germans who were who were teaching in universities where there was a Catholic faculty and a German faculty, a, a Protestant faculty, and they kind of felt like, you know, there's some buzz over there. Uh, and, you know, here we are, what are we doing? And uh, Munich was like that when I was there as a student, though, Things had moved on. Hans Kung was there, but the biblical people were doing biblical scholarship in the manner of Lutherans. And then you had a group that was interested in history of interpretation, the so-called ressourcement, to use their language, or nouvelle théologie, to use the language of their opponents. And, and you know that this de Lubac was, you know, banned and so forth. And then he was sort of brought back with a ticker tape parade. And he, here he is at Vatican II with Yves Congar and, and, and all. And the thing that I found interesting was obviously this negotiation going on at Vatican II between these parties. And Ratzinger could shuttle between, uh, yes, we have to do some form of historical criticism, but I'm also interested in resourcement. And plus, I, these are my friends. I get along with them. I understand what they're doing. We, we can both be allied against the, you know, Thomas is it, and, and you know, there, there's nothing more to be said. And so things were negotiated, and a lot of my book is about that negotiation and how successful it was. And I think, you know, a camel is a horse made by a committee or whatever the thing, however you put that. I mean, there, there's a lot of trade-offs in there, and I'm not sure they're always coherent trade-offs. But one of the fruits of that was the lectionary. And funnily enough, or this is mid sixties, on the one hand, you're trying to say that historical criticism has its place where someone like Crossan, I mean, look at Crossan and, and Ray Brown, you know, sort of represent a real tension as to how they appreciate the history of interpretation. Crossan, not at all. Brown tried to smuggle in something called census plenior because he at least got that there's more to be said. And, but at the end of the day, the lectionary in its initial run produced by Roman Catholics, and again, the details are in my book, 
introduced the church to highly figural uh, modes of thinking. Because in the choosing of Old Testament passages to line up with the Gospels, there was this richness of typological and figural association coming exactly at the time when that's what historical criticism wasn't interested in. So there's an irony in that. And then Protestants, through for various reasons, again, that I rehearsed in the book, decided that this was actually a pretty good tool to introduce the Bible on Sunday mornings, and they got interested in it. It's the funny sort of passing of ships where you have Roman Catholics, to my mind, producing very constructive model for how the church ought to hear the Bible, and then Protestants saying, we want a piece of the action. We're going to nick. We're going to niggle up here and there. We'll take out Baruch and and whatever. I mean, we but there's some old-fashioned fights about which we we might get ginned up. But by and large, the thing was a success, maybe totally in spite of itself. I uh, I find it. You know, we were we've been worshiping in France for the last four years, and lessons are the same on Sunday morning. And uh, it's I don't. I'm not a big fan of of uh, consumer tracks, which is what we have today. What would you, it was like a cheeseburger, I'll take mine with bacon. And it seemed to me that the original idea was a good one, but you know, every lectionary is, is gonna have trade-offs. You got a liturgical year, you got the whole Bible, you've got associations, you got all kinds of things you're trying to do. I thought that was a, a pretty good model for biblical theology at the end of the day, but no one would call the lectionary biblical theology, except me. Uh, I think we, we might be thinking of a textbook of some kind, yeah. creation, soteriology, you know, that kind of thing. That's what, when I hear biblical theology, that's what I hear. And Creighton, you may only mean some sort of theologically sensitive uh, handling of Holy Scripture. Well, that, you, you pick up from my remarks that I think a canonical approach is, uh, is tuned in to the various sides of things. Charles once said, that's something that I think is right. When I read a lot of historical critical or even on the other side of the ditch, you know, sort of theological work divorced from scripture, he once said, you know, a lot of the problem is that we need calculus and we've got algebra. Um, it, a canonical approach is ambitious. You know, it's trying to honor a number of things at the same time. It's much simpler to say, take J, E, D, and P and run with it, or uh, what do you think about Ezekiel 13? You know, I, uh, it's ambitious. It, it's interested in a lot of things at the same time. Uh, and in that sense, in its most robust form, it's also a hard thing for any one person to, to, uh, to do well. Sometimes we pick up one side of the thing and run with it. If that was the history of interpretation, I think that wouldn't be too bad. You have Odin's project, you know, um, which is useful in a way. There's a new one coming out of Ecole Biblique that I'm uh, involved with in a little bit, Thomas Werner, uh, the Bible and its traditions. Uh, I mentioned the Blackwell's volume. Uh, there can, things can go wrong with that. Now you can turn the history of interpretation into graffiti See, no one agreed, and we don't agree either. You know, you can do that kind of thing. Uh, Blackwell's has a bit of that, to my mind. I know I'm being recorded, but I, they probably don't. They probably think that's 
that's what that's their signature item. So I did want to uh, I did want to go back and uh, to something you talked about a little bit earlier, which is kind of uh, the relationship between canonical reading and um, allegory. So it seems like in, in my reading, at least a lot of canonical practitioners are um, well open to the historical interpretation of the church, like you pointed out with with child, um, somewhat skeptical of maybe some of the excesses of allegorical reading. Um, so instead, you often hear in these circles and in, in some of your work too, uh, the terms figural and typological used as sort of a replacement for allegorical. Um, I think in some ways you do get very similar results, but it's still a different uh, approach. So um, I was wondering if you could help us suss out the difference there between allegorical and typological slash figural. And also maybe um, talk a little bit about uh, Paul Beauchamp and and some of his uh, some of his uh, contribution to this particular subject. I found the chapter where he talks about the Passover in the Old and the New Testament in your book, Convergence, is really, really uh, interesting and, and beautifully done. So he's a, he's a remarkable guy. I, I really run across people like this from time to time. Heiko Miskotta, a Dutchman, he, he, he wrote a book called When the Gods Are Silent. It's full of riches. Uh, this book's similar, the Land Lotro Testament, this volume two, separated from volume one by a number of years. So he changed his mind. The first book's more into structuralism and trends in, in French intellectual hermeneutics and so forth. Book two has got some real shimmering things. That one was Quel Pac et Premier, which Passover is first. I immediately gravitate toward a title like that. I, the, part of it is that the refusal to allow chronological grids to govern the way we think about the Old and the New Testament. The one and the other Testament is, is obviously an effort to get around that for me, the Elder Testament. One could get waylaid, I think, by arguments about which terms are right. Um, Augustine, uh, uh, no one, I don't think no one formally, uh, you know, says I'm doing allegory. I, it's just, it comes to them as a sort of formal category. Uh, Aquinas uses the term type and figure quite a lot. Calvin does. Uh, it's, it's there for them. Uh, I would say, I, I use, I like, I prefer the term extended sense because this is just, it's uh, a neologism. I mean, it's not really laying claim to any side of these debates. I think at its, it, on my view, and uh, Jason Biasi and others may have a different view of this, there are, there are aspects of Augustine that one can learn from, but I think are uh, deficient exegetically when it comes to the Old Testament. You really, everything is about something else, uh, which is what allegory literally means, if the meaning is about something other than what we're reading. Now, I, I think in his hands, you often have to ask, what's the, what's the context? It's, some, it's often homiletical. You know, I, I think you, the other thing about Augustine is you'll find that he'll say, he'll say this here and they'll say something over there. It's not, I don't think it's a method. It's, I mean, he's, he's, he's having fun, you know, I mean, dribble in the beard and he feigned madness. And th this isn't about anything in David. This is about something else. Now that would be allegory in its 
classic form, I suppose, maybe it's most problematical form, I would say. The quadriga, the idea that the Bible has four senses, of course, is again a distillation. No one goes around saying, okay, we're going to read a text and produce four senses. That, that, that isn't what happens. It's just that it's, a, it's an effort to say that the Bible is rich enough that it delivers a lot of things a moral, an eschatological, a literal, an allegorical, you know, these, these things just are due to its richness. Uh, as Gregory said, you know, the Bible's like a river in which children can wade and elephants swim. You know, it's, the, the, there's a simple sense and there's an extended sense and there's a richer sense. But I, you know, I think what you're picking up on is that uh, what has emerged a bit is a preference for something like figural. And I would say that's because it doesn't try to claim too much. It also is probably sensitive to not wanting, let's take, let's take an example, Emmanuel. Think at the one hand, you want to say that in Isaiah 7, that we don't want the prophet saying something that makes no sense to anybody. That's the historical sense. On the other hand, the, the child is glossed as the as the chapter goes on in a kind of symbolic or eschatological sense then in chapter nine for unto us a child is born again sounds like a, a real thing historically and aquinas would likely say yeah it's probably some israelite king and then in 11 you have and a root will come from the so that one's more eschatologically oriented now all those things are happening and they've been brought into some kind of rough conjunction so that the historical sense tells us that Isaiah was endowed by God and under the compulsion of the Holy Spirit to say something meaningful to Israel, which also surpassed the meaningfulness of the moment. Take that for what it's worth. Now, the Bible is doing this in the Old Testament. It's seeing associations. They don't have to be connected in time. They're actually better when they're not. Assyria and Babylon are types of something. And so this is happening inside of scripture. It's not allegory because it, it's a both and way of thinking about things. Um, and so, you know, when Radner uses the term, Don Collett uses the term, I don't think it's because they don't like allegory. They just, they know that allegory, as a matter of fact, I think both, do actually like the term allegory. Uh, it begs a lot of questions about what you're saying, you know. Uh, and, and it seems to me that one gets off, one needs to look at texts and see what people are doing in order to identify figure and, and allegory and stuff, rather than trying to draw up abstract things. We all, you start, you have to have some presuppositions about what you think terms mean, but, but then you have to drill down and see if it works. Some allegories are great. And, but I think they're better when they, when they're, when they're closer to figure reading. In any event, the debate there, though, you mentioned Delubach and Daniel, that's a tricky thing, you know, in a way, some of that is just what people do well. Delubach did uh, the history of interpretation well. He had a skill set for that. You know, some of that is just, Kind of library skills you have, how much sits flesh do you have? Um, as I hear the debate, and I mentioned it a bit, both of them would have been regarded as ressourcement theologians at Vatican II. 
and they would have sat next to each other. You know, Congar or um, de Lubac was the teacher, yeah, an older colleague of Daniel Le. I think Daniel Le was interested in finding a way to connect tribe two, the Ressourcement people, with the tribe three, the historical critical people. And Von Rod was flirting with this at the same time. This again comes up in my book, Convergences. A Tupologische Auslegung des Alten Testaments was an effort from Von Rod to take tradition history and talk about it in typological terms. And it was all happening at roughly the same time. And I think, I think Daniel, Lowe, I'm just going to invent this a bit. I think Daniel would have read Von Rod and said, and maybe he did, I, I, something you could track down and said, no, this is, this is good. This is, a, this is a form of typology that has some legs in the modern historical critical climate. I think Daniel, I think De Lubach just said, I'm not interested in that. It could go wrong. Uh, I've written a lot about where I think it goes wrong in Von Rod. Um, but so in part, you know, it's kind of hard to parse that debate. De Lubach, you know, I, I, and I'm not an expert in this, De Lubach was a towering, you know, also kind of a towering personality. And he would chide Daniel, I think. I mean, this came to him, but I'm not sure there's a whole lot in that. At the end of the day, when the dust settles, they're pretty close to one another. And they're certainly miles away from, you know, certain trends in modern Catholic biblical scholarship. Uh, you know, I, I say at the end of the book, you know, I, Childs and Ray Brown were good friends and they were fighting different battles. I mean, you know, Childs wrote, Childs wrote uh, Brown and said, I don't like this book, Jesus of Nazareth, or, you know, whatever project he was working on at the time, the birth of the Messiah. He said, this is so tied up with fact, uh, questions of facticity and uh, old fashioned historical criticism. And Ray Brown wrote him back on a postcard and said, Bard, your friend, your enemies are not my enemies. You know, he was trying to talk to a Catholic church which had no experience of historical critical questions and trying to do so as a pastor and a priest. And Childs was saying, I was trained in all that. And I just, you know, I, and I, I end with that in the book because the birth narratives are intriguing. In a way, a lot of historical criticism is trying to reproduce something like Tatian's uh, synopsis where you, you you're trying to figure out how Matthew and uh, Luke can be read together um, what are the real facts I mean, what to what events does the Bible make reference and can we reconstruct those uh, which ones are myth which ones got in there did he go down to Egypt did he stop in for a circumcision in root and that kind of thing you and and so, Ray Bra uh, Ratzinger, Benedict, is interested in having, trying to have an answer to that question. And he doesn't think his colleague, uh, whose name will, will, will depart from me for right now, the, the sort of premier Roman Catholic New Testament scholar of the day, had done very well on the, on the job. And if you read the books on Jesus of Nazareth, he's, he, this comes out quite clearly. And, and, and he uses the language canonical interpretation or canonical approach does Ratzinger in the book. And he says, oh, in America, there's this thing that's emerging. I'm, I like the idea. We read texts uh, in an effort to understand their coherence and so forth and so on. And I, he means it. And I, he's still alive today. I'd love to talk to him about it. But 
then when it comes to the actual handling of something like the birth narratives, uh, it isn't at all like what Childs would do. Childs would just simply say, you can't, you can't make them. <laughs> They're different. They're concerned with different things, Luke and, and Matthew. And it's not incumbent upon the church to tell us what really happened. The Bible bears witness. It isn't evidence. It, it's a test. Its genre is testimony. And therefore, it can make mistakes, so to say. And that's, that doesn't matter, uh, I'm thinking of the example of quoting from the prophets and getting the wrong prophet and that kind of thing, less than in the case of, of Luke and Matthew. And he says, you know, most parishioners that you ask will say they'll know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and he had a childhood in Nazareth. And if you say, what about the crash? You've combined these two things. They just say, I don't know. I never thought about it, you know. And Child said, that's okay. The, the main things are coming through. Uh, and for, for Ratzinger, the project went in a different direction slightly. How to use historical criticism more maximally. Or for Child, it may be wrong. Maybe the wrong questions are being asked. Uh, it's, too, it's, it's too short a time to get into that example well. I apologize because um, I think I also I feel for Benedict in a way who, who am I to say that I think he was always a classroom man and he he thought well you know he was a he had that I wish we had that in in our own we don't and we don't have people like this to my mind very much that was one of the ways you posed the question though let me end on this let me say this we can continue to talk I'm not trying to wrap things up when you say in, at one point, and I, I really want this to come through, well, this can be tricky given some of the more exclusionary claims of the Roman Catholic Church. This is where you pose the question. You, um, you talk a lot about the impact of Vatican II. See, and I think from where I am, and maybe it's from having spent four years in, in a Catholic context in France where my wife was struggling with lung transplant and other things, I, I'd be, I don't tend to hear Vatican II as making exclusionary claims. And, and yeah, you're, you're just trying to provoke me probably a little bit here in the question. And I get, I get it when an Anglican says that. Uh, but I'm, I'm far more open, and this, I hope this comes through in the book, to a species of Catholicity that I wish Anglicanism would gravitate toward. And if I had to make a judgment about what's happened since the mid 60s, I would say we have become an incoherent Catholic voice with no ecclesiology. And in that respect, if there's a problem, it's on our side. I think the covenant would have given some some legs to a claim of Catholicity. But I think if, if Anglicans are going to persist in talking about themselves in, as a Catholic church, and I know I'm talking to people at Neshota House, it seems to me this can't be grounded only in proper liturgies. Uh, that's, that's not 
you know, my experiences of the Roman Catholic churches, they'll, they'll, they'll you know, quite be quite prepared to say, oh, we appreciate the fact that you have a really good liturgy, uh, better than having a bad one. But it, that doesn't mean very much. I mean, it doesn't, you can't confect an ecclesial claim out of a liturgical tradition. Now that goes back to Cranmer and people are going to, you know, people will say you're wrong sites on that. But I, the longer I live, my grandfather was an Anglo-Catholic. It was at, in 1920, I think the Lambeth bishops had a right to, to try to talk this way about themselves. I, I don't think today it's all that obvious anymore. Uh, what do we mean? And the very fact that we toggle between rights with a capital C and a, and a small one just, I think, just says that it's an assertion that we're making about ourselves, that is maybe one party of us are making about ourselves. And so I don't tend to, I, what I see Vatican II, what's sad of course is all the missed opportunities and there's blame to be laid on the other side, I get that. But whatever ecumenical progress, convergences to use my language existed at that period has been squandered for all kinds of reasons. And so, uh, and you know, I try in the book to argue that the Roman Catholic Church, inclined to say the Catholic Church, ought to make bolder ecumenical efforts toward Catholic thinking folk. But it's an easy, it's an easy thing to avoid, not least because it may look like poaching or it may look you know, uh, you know, it may just not look salutary. So we invent an ordinariate. I don't think that that's a way forward or much of anything. Um, so I, I, over time, I've you know, I I tend to I tend now to think that Luther was more in in some respects more right about this to say there is a Catholic Church. It's in captivity. If it corrects itself we have a duty to, to be a part of it. What would correction look like? Robust scripture, laity involved, all kinds of things. He could probably tell you. And if those things happen, and that's why, of course, there have been a steady stream of major Lutheran scholars who said, we're not calling ourselves Catholic. That would be crossing our fingers as Lutherans. We're Lutherans. If we want to be Catholics, then we'll become Catholic. And Anglicans, I think, have tried to have this both ways. And I just don't know over time how durable this will be, particularly when now one looks in on the state of the Church of England, where the claims were made. You know, it's not a happy situation. Uh, so uh, here I am, I'm, I'm being recorded. And uh, I, I, but I heard, I'm going to say you, you said it, exclusionary. I don't hear a lot of exclusion at, uh, Vatican II, I hear a lot of hopefulness. It just didn't didn't bear fruit. And there are wiser heads than mine, but I, it saddens me. And I had an experience in France of being part of a Catholic body that I, you can't, that couldn't happen in North America, I don't think. Just we're too I, denominated. I, I will say I, I largely agree with, with what you've said in response to that particular question. I think when I when I wrote the question about exclusionary claims of the Roman Catholic Church, I meant more broadly speaking, a sort of ecclesial ecclesial um, singularity, uh, and then how how 
how we as Protestants then would converge with that, which is the point of your book, which is, I think, one of the reasons it's so valuable is that there is that kind of across the lines work you know, being you, done. The top, the, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I took, the, I took the question in the spirit, which it was given, and it's an important topic. I mean, I think at the time you had a lot of Roman Catholic talk about how baptism made one a Catholic uh, sort of unconsciously almost. But again, you know, on, on one hand, that's a, that's a positive and generous comment to make, but it's, of course, it's being made from their side of the matter. And I don't necessarily disagree, but it, it participates in a discussion that didn't go anywhere. I mean, when Yves Congar, when he studied the situation at Lambeth 1920, he said, to the degree to which you hold on to national entities, you can't be Catholic. You're going to have to surrender that. And I don't know, there could be an argument to be made on both sides of that, but I think, where's that all gone? The last time, and I think the last time that that, that archic thing met, they said, you know, you, you had a chance to do something in the covenant and you dropped it. So we, we're back to square one again. We don't really know what's going on. And I don't know how you all handle that up in the show, to, you know, because clearly the, the Catholic claims are are ones that that you wish to make. And... For me, the real question is, yeah, but, but concretely, given the reality of the Catholic Church, what does that mean? Uh, I, I'm reluctant any longer to, defi to def define a Catholicism that exists independently of, of, the Roman, of the Catholic Church as it exists. And I think in 1920, one could have been forgiven for thinking, too, that the Roman Catholic Church was on the ropes. Basically, it was an ethnic church full of odd Italians and funny clothes, and here we are in the New World, and uh, my grandfather felt that way. He just assumed as an Anglo-Catholic that he was the Catholic Church and that the Roman Catholic Church would, was just a church of odd immigrants who didn't believe in uh, in democracy. Yeah. So, and, and Ephraim's an expert in this. He's written some good stuff. So I, I'm more of a student of his on that topic. The clash between American culture and, and that it takes a different form in France. I mean, it, it, you, have a, you have a church that really thinks of itself as slightly ashamed of its treatment of Protestants on one hand, or at least aware that that's a bloody and unhappy uh, history. And on the other hand, is marginalized enough to say, if you're interested, you're welcome. We're not going around and saying, uh, what species are you? In America, everything is 5,000 denominations, and that's the church I don't go to kind of ism. Well, you didn't come to hear Sites talk about that, but I've done it. So, um, well, well, we really appreciate it, and we're, we're really uh, glad for the opportunity to get to, uh, to, get to talk with you today. Uh, to, to kind of wrap up our discussion, um, and, and this might be the hardest question we've asked so far. Um, what would you say is the single best or most important book in the field of biblical theology, which we can use the sort of expanded definition of theologically, uh, theologically sensitive interpretation of scripture uh, that's been written in the 21st century, uh, besides one of your own, of course? Well, my own, of course, but no, uh, I... I puzzled over that. I mentioned the Göttingen thing. That's biblical theology. They're trying to do that. I don't know how it'll work. 
Um, they've got one person in New Testament, one person in Old Testament. They buy, they uh, co-author a book on creation, something like that. Uh, you know, I, uh, so about, but let me stay away from, uh, from talking about that more. Um, I'm intrigued with the essays in the volume that was dedicated to me. There's a brilliant essay uh, from from Reno. You know, see, Reno's an interesting person. You know, he was a liberal Anglican, became Roman Catholic, runs first things. Uh, he's a fr close friend of Ephraim's. There's some good essays in there, some very stimulating. His in particular caught me. It has to do with natural sciences in England and appeal to uh, figuralism and things. I see a volume coming out from Lexham Press. I wrote a jacket endorsement for it. Uh, May their lights converge or something. So it's a line from Dunn or Herbert and it's a uh, figural reading in the Anglican tradition. Radner and David Ney have edited it and it's on um, uh, Tyndall, uh, Dunn. D Dunn is a, Dunn's a very interesting person and his sermons are very, very interesting and not studied well. Herbert didn't live very long, brilliant lover of the Bible. I mean, what happened to all of that? Uh, you know, Oriel professor of Old Testament at, at uh, Oxford or something, it would be like, I, what, what is all that stuff, you know? Well, it was, it, you know, it, was, it, there's a, it had a long and interesting life. Uh, Eugen Pentiuk at uh, the Orthodox school, and I get the two mixed up, I'm in conversation with him, he's trying to do a biblical theology where he uses, um, I think it is one of the Cappadocians uh, as a model, but he was trained at Harvard in historical criticism. Uh, he wrote commentary on Hosea. He's an interesting guy, Romanian, who uh, was raised in the Orthodox Church, had no encounter with the Bible, and then got completely overwhelmed by it. John Baer is a John Bear writes good books. I have issues with him, but they're, he, he's a serious thinker. Um, his, he, he, he and I have an exchange, polite exchange over the Elder Testament. I think for Bear, he doesn't have an Old Testament that's somehow lower than the New, but he has a Bible that's lower than the earliest reception of it. And in that sense, that's just going to spark another kind of debate. Uh, is the second century, you know, really the sole guide to how the Bible is heard? Roman Catholics are not going to like that on one side, and uh, scriptural people are going to say that's too domesticating. On the other hand, there are things about him. He's a brilliant guy. I mean, he's gone off to Aberdeen, I hear. Uh, he's thinking, you know, he's thinking hard. Um, so those would be some names that come to mind. Gary Anderson is a very thoughtful uh, reader. Uh, and part of that is that he's trained in the tradition. I don't get a whole lot out of Roller Moberly. His name might come up. He, he's, I think, more on the Lindbeck's kind of experiential expressivist side of reading, a little more reader response. But he's, he's popular in the context of what I regard as a very impoverished British seen in terms of the handling of scripture. Uh, but that one book that their lights might converge or that's coming out soon is certainly worth reading. Uh, Pennyhook, 
Uh, I, oh, I know. I put a note at the end of the thing. Just read the history of interpretation. Just sit down with your students and and read the Psalms and just try to figure out what these people are what, what they're worried about. I learned more from doing that than uh, anything else. And I maybe I'll write a biblical theology. I'd like to write one. I'd like to write a doctrine of God in, in the New Testament, uh, in which I just look at the way in which God is depicted in the New Testament. That's slightly mischievous because the point would be he doesn't look a whole lot different than he does in the new in the old. <laughs> it's a kind of assumed. Uh, you know, it's really not. Charles wrote an essay on that one time. It was really one of the one of the most convicting essays. The one God of the two testaments or something is in that biblical theology in Christ's book. And and uh, well, thank you, gentlemen. Yes, thank you. Well, one one thing we like to do at the end of every uh, interview, just to kind of end on a lighter note, is talk about uh, one thing that we're kind of into lately. It can be a book, can be a movie, uh, TV show, experience, or whatever. So, uh, Doctor Seitz, what are you into uh, lately? I am a uh, what I'm doing. Oh, I, that's a good question. I am a big, big fan of uh, uh, Haute Provence author whose name is Jean Jono. And he wrote, the only thing you might know would be the Horseman on the Roof. And they made a movie out of that, Hussar sur la Toit. Uh, he's, a, he's a fascinating person. I, I, so I read him to work on my French, but also I just find him extremely, he's sort of Faulknerian, I guess, would be the closest thing. It, all his books are, are in, and he's, the Hussar sur la Toit is timely right now because it's on the cholera uh, epidemic of 1832. And you have all the same sort of conspiracy. Uh, they poisoned the wells. The government did it. Uh, it but the, the depiction, and this is unusual for Jono, uh, it's a deeply Catholic life. I think people don't understand how deeply Catholic French rural life is. The, the difference between this and debates about uh, Zoom worship, you have nuns who stay and clean body, died in very quick time with cholera and it didn't make any difference, but you would clean bodies and prepare them so that they'd be clean when Jesus came to get them. And the witness of the church is extraordinary. And uh, Jono has a lot of sympathy for it. It's a great book. I, uh, it's, I think it's translated into English and they made a movie. I think I haven't seen it. My wife has seen it. My wife's a French speaker. So he's, I really, I'm a big fan of his. Uh, the Man Who Planted Trees, written a lot of books. That's awesome. Father Creighton, what are, you, what are you into? Well, I think the biggest thing I've been into lately is I, I grew up um, reading and watching All Creatures Great and Small. Oh, yeah. I, just have a, I just have a soft spot for it. It was just a my mother and I would, would watch the, the television series together and she would give me the books and talk about it and just nostalgia. And um, this past year, they, they did a remake of All Creatures Great and Small and it's absolutely fantastic. It's just heartwarming and wholesome and lovely. Remake in the sense of news episodes or just brought it all together? So it's, it's, it's sort of a reboot of uh, all creatures great and small and um it's fantastic they're they're sticking to to the books and to you know 
Harriet's sort of episodic life. And so uh, there's a lot of, you know, material that's covered and some new material to pad things out a little bit. And some characters are getting a little bit more time than they than they might um, either in the books or or in the, the previous show. But it is just it's it's really heartwarming. It's one of those feel good sort of um, sort of series to watch. And so my, my wife and I have just been, you know, I, I hate to say it, but we just binged the entire first season. Wesley, can I piggyback just for a second? I was in Munich in 1991 on a von Humboldt writing a commentary on Isaiah and I had a dog and he barked and I was stuck in my, I, so I had to stick, stick close to the desk and every afternoon all creatures great and small came on in German every afternoon. So it was, you, you could see it, it was, they did the whole, I saw the whole thing with nonstop in German. It was okay. I mean, it was fine. Even, but I, I know I still identify them with their German accents, but it wasn't once a week, you know, it was every day. And it was like at four 30 and it was my break, you know? So I, I appreciate that. No, no commercial interruptions. It was really good. That's awesome. It's, it's just heartwarming, you know, what's it not is. to no, like. It's very, very, very good. All right, Father Miles, what are you into these days? Yeah, so um, I'll caveat this by saying that I, I generally do not have a pretty high uh, appreciation for a lot of digital media or digital productions that Christians have produced. It tends to, it can be pretty low quality, especially when they're trying to do things related specifically to creature, uh, to, to, to scripture. You know, there, there's of course some great movies and great things out there by Christians that are pretty compelling and thoughtful. Um, but because I'm a priest and I try to know what my people are watching and I've had some recommendations that I have to watch it. My wife and I started to watch the chosen series. If you're familiar with this, this is the crowdsourced free uh, series it's about the life of Christ, but it's written in an interesting way where it's from the perspective of those who have encountered Christ and they fill in a lot of, um, a lot of the details that aren't in scripture, perhaps it would be an interesting topic if we had more time on the, the, the episode today to, cause they definitely try to do some harmonizing or overlaying or stuff, but I guess you have to do that in the TV series, but I've actually found myself um, enjoying it in ways because of what it does to make Jesus and the disciples seem like uh, first century Jewish individuals under Roman occupation. I feel like they've done their research and some scholarship um, and they've, Im they've imported that into the TV series so I'm enjoying it uh, more than I thought that I would. And um, so, yeah, so we're watching it and only about five or six, seven episodes in, we'll see where it goes and see how they handle. I'm, I'm interested to see how they handle some, some various parts of Jesus' life uh, here and there, but, but we'll get there. So Nice, nice. I have people in my parish who really uh, enjoy that too, and I, I've not watched it yet, but they keep telling me I should. So I guess I will at some point. Yeah. Hence, so, hence the reason I'm watching it. Yeah. 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 So, so for me, um, I went and saw the film, the last the green Knight, uh, the other day, I'm a big fan of the, uh, original, uh, poem, uh, Sir Gawain and the green Knight. Um, and I thought it was a really cool, uh, modern day adaptation of it. Um, it's not exactly a one-to-one -one adaptation of straight from the poem to the screen. It certainly, uh, does things a little bit differently, but I, I, I thought it was a very good example of sort of modern contextualization, you know, not not just reproducing a classic, but making a classic speak um, to modern problems. Um, I, I thought that was very interesting. And of course, the movie was aesthetically very pleasing. Um, they did a great job with the visuals. Um, so anyway, so I, it was good. That was the first movie I've seen since uh, since the pandemic began. Um, so I, I greatly enjoyed uh, 
getting to go to the movie theater, had the theater all to myself too, which was great. So hard, hard not to enjoy that. Miles, well, I'd love to see how, what they do with the Canaanite woman. Let me email me when he, I'm preaching on that in a couple of weeks. And I, I feel like that's one of those texts that totally gets sort of botched, you know. Yeah, that would be interesting. The one that but I, one of the ones I watched last night they did was the wedding at Cana. And um, I was actually really impressed by how they, they did that one. You'll have to go watch it. That was a good episode, I thought. Well, I say but, that yeah. because, you know, it, Tyre was a very upscale place, you know, and you sort of wonder whether we've got the thing all backwards, um, bread from the dogs and all that. That's kind of the way I think the Jews felt about um, the Decapolis and Tyre inside these places were luxes, luxes places, you know, and anyway. So that contextualization, uh, what's it like to live under Roman occupation? Well, that probably comes through in that, I, I suspect. Uh, well, Dr. Seitz, thank you so much for, for joining us today. It's been a really uh, pleasant and fascinating discussion with you. Um, if people are interested in your work, we'll, we'll put links to your books in the show notes, but, um, but is there anywhere that they can follow you um, to kind of get what you're, what you're putting out? That's interesting. You know, I've never done very much with that. My wife runs a French travel and culture business, and she's got superb web stuff and all that, and just... You know, Childs, he, he never, he, he typed, he hand wrote his books and he, and he, and he had an Olivetti typewriter with a stuck key, you know, and I tried to get him on the internet and he just wouldn't have anything to do with it. I guess I'm coming to that point in my life where I have to hire somebody to help do that. Um, you can go to Amazon, I guess, and they always have little stuff. I was, I got some good endorsements for convergences. I sent it to Roland Williams or I had the press send it. I thought, you know, well, he, what will he do? And he very graciously had something nice to say. And uh, I, I respect his mind. He's a brilliant guy. Uh, so we named uh, our son after him. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, implausible, I think, uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, given his, his talents. But, you know, who knows where that's headed and, and peace on his house. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, thanks again for, for being with You're us welcome. today and, thanks, and listeners and listeners, if you like what we're doing, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, rate review and subscribe us, to us wherever you get your podcasts and uh, share us with your friends. And you can email us with feedback or show ideas at the sacramentalists at gmail.com. Father Miles, would you uh, close us in prayer today with the collect for the second Sunday of Advent? Absolutely. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.